You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son, whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and this is my show, episode 759 of this podcast on Sunday, November 19th, 2023. I apologize if <clears throat> I have a little bit of a weird sound in my voice, not feeling the best. Sickness has been going through my house, but I am on the recovery side of it, I think, I hope, and I'm going to podcast anyways. <laughs> so we'll see how this goes, but bear with me as we talk about in this episode, the Census Bureau predicting something like a population collapse, population bust, I suppose is what they're 
really calling it, but it's a population collapse here in the U.S. If trends don't reverse somehow, or as they're saying, if we don't just keep on importing illegal immigrants, immigrants, maybe they would like them to be legal, undocumented migrants. Also, we'll talk about Xi Jinping's visit to the U.S. last week to meet with business leaders and political leaders in our country. We'll talk about hospital data being gobbled up by big tech online and our government supposedly throttling the websites for hospitals because big tech is using them to collect metadata on patients illegally, by the way. Also an update on efforts to remove former President Donald Trump, current candidate for at least the Republican nomination. He's probably going to get the Republican nomination for the Republican ticket for the 2024 presidential election. Also, New Jersey teachers unions saying, let's just get away with not having qualified, skillful teachers. Let's do away with skills tests for the teachers in our public schools in New Jersey. An update a little closer to home with regards to Denver public schools here in Colorado. And then lastly, a disappointing report I want to talk about out of Texas regarding school choice and how that pertains, how that does not bode well for school choice unless the Republican Party in Texas and elsewhere across the U.S. has a change of heart, has a revelation. They need to be made aware that this is a very important thing that parents in America would have the option to take their kids where they want to take them to get a good education. The public schools are getting a vote of no confidence increasingly. Or you could do what we do. You could homeschool your kids. Republicans need to get it together on that question. We'll get to all of that and more in this episode. I'll try to keep it brief. Please forgive me for the sake of not feeling my best, but we will nevertheless get to these things. Lord willing, we'll have a good time doing it. Second Samuel 9, though, that's what I read at the top of this episode. Let's talk about Second Samuel chapter 9 before we get into current events. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. That includes this anecdote about David. David now, as you know, is king over all Israel. He's going to have a long reign as king over all Israel. He has served as king. You might find that to be an odd pairing of words, but he has served the people of Israel as king over just the tribe of Judah in Hebron for seven and a half years. Now he's king over all Israel, including but not limited to Judah. And there's this question of what do you do with the house of Saul? Saul being the previous king to David, his son Ishbosheth, his last surviving son Ishbosheth, having been king over Israel for two years while David ruled in Hebron over the house of Judah, the tribe of Judah. Now David is king over all of Israel. And before we talk about how David relates to Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, grandson of Saul. Let's consider briefly what would be very common, what would be very typical, not always the case, but very typical, when a new king comes to power over a 
nation, over a people, what does a king typically do if he's a godless man, if he's not a moral man, but if he wants to secure his rule? He eliminates all rivals. He eliminates anybody else who would have a claim to the throne. And then when people get upset, if people get upset as to how he's ruling the country, they can't go and bring back the heir, the rival claimant to the throne to replace that king. So for instance, when Saul initially died, Saul and his sons on Mount Gilboa, what did Abner do? Abner went and anointed Ishbosheth. Why? Because Ishbosheth had a claim to the throne. If you believe in hereditary rule, then Ishbosheth, being the son of Saul, should be king next. That was good enough for Abner, even though Abner would be, and everybody knew it, the real power behind the throne. He was the kingmaker in that case. Ishbosheth coming to the throne over all Israel meant that there would be war, there would be conflict between David's house and the house of Saul, with Ishbosheth as a figurehead. That sort of thing could happen again if Mephibosheth was to stick around, and another man might have, in David's place, just had Mephibosheth killed for the greater good, right? Let's eliminate this kid. Let's eliminate this young man who has a kid of his own by this time. Let's eliminate him. And then you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry that you're going to have somebody coming up with the idea that David should be removed and a son of Saul put back on the throne if they don't like David. They don't like what he does. They don't like how he rules or administers justice or leads the country. If things go badly at a certain point, they won't be able to put either Mephibosheth or his son, a young son named Mika, M-I-C-A, on the throne. But that's not what David does. David is apparently no dope. He's been very shrewd to this point at various times. He's wise as a serpent and he's harmless as a dove towards some, not towards everybody. He is definitely a very dangerous man when it comes to the enemies of Israel. But when it comes to internal matters, consistently, he is restrained. He doesn't act out when he has the opportunity to kill Saul on two separate occasions, when Saul was still alive and king over Israel and pursuing David. David has an opportunity, not once but twice, to kill Saul, and he doesn't. And his stated reason in the moment is not that Saul is such a good guy, but that Saul is the Lord's anointed. And God himself will have to remove Saul. David's not going to move against him. In fact, anybody who would move against Saul and who even claims after the death of Saul and his sons that he killed Saul and here's the news, David punishes with death. When you fast forward to Ishbosheth being anointed by not God, but Abner, and then two years into his reign, being murdered by his own men because Abner had been killed by the brothers of a man that Abner had killed himself in battle. When those men bring the head of Ishbosheth to David as though this is a prize, this is good news, David has those men put to death as well. And so fast forward to this situation with Mephibosheth, if not for that having been consistently his way of relating, you might expect that David wants to know where Mephibosheth is and where Micah is, or Micah, the son of Mephibosheth. He might want to know those things so that he can have them eliminated. 
And instead, what he does, and I don't think this is a let's keep them close so that I can, you know, keep control over them. I think he has Mephibosheth close to him so that he can protect Mephibosheth. Because just like the two captains of raiding parties for Ishbosheth killed Ishbosheth, they murdered him, assassinated him while he was taking a nap. And they thought David would be pleased by that. You might have others who ignorantly suppose that eliminating Mephibosheth or eliminating his son, his young son, Micah, is going to curry favor with David. David's going to eliminate that, I think, that's my view of this, by just keeping them close at hand and having them dine at his table. And he's going to give instructions that they will be shown kindness and that everything that belonged to the house of Saul now passes to Mephibosheth. We're not leaving you impoverished. We're not leaving you dependent. Till his land, make sure that he has productive land and that he's well taken care of. That's a kindness to somebody in the person of Saul who was a a crazy person. He was uh, an insane person behaving very unjustly towards David. But then it's also, I think, as stated in the text, it's a kindness to Jonathan who was very generous, very just, and a more than friend, a brother. They loved one another as their own soul. It says, when Jonathan is still alive, this is a kindness to Jonathan that this son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, would be taken care of by David. So it's faithfulness, actually, on David's part to the memory of Jonathan in particular, that he takes care of his son and his grandson. Why is it mentioned that Mephibosheth is lame in both of his feet? I think that is to say, this guy could not possibly be any more vulnerable. And it's been said that the test of a man's character is how he relates to those who can't possibly do anything for him. That's the test of whether this is really charity, whether this is really kindness, or whether you just have to do this. Do you have to do this? Kindness towards this person? Are you doing a kindness and expecting a reward from this person? You trade favors, they'll owe you one. In the case of Mephibosheth, him being crippled, I would say that just highlights how vulnerable the man is, how David could easily dispose of him, and who would stop him, right? His young son, Micah, it would be easy, right? Very easy. And there probably were people who were wondering, will he? Is that what's going on here? Ziba is probably wondering in part what's coming next. But then again, there would be a lot of reasons for an an informed person to not wonder that at all. And to say how David has conducted himself to this point, he's going to be generous. He's going to be charitable. He's going to be kind and protective of these descendants of Jonathan. I think that's the reason why we're told that he's lame. It's to emphasize that this is good character on David's part. Now, there is some disagreement, some dispute as to whether David should have spared Saul. I personally favor looking at that as a wise decision, a just and a righteous decision. Some might say, well, God never told him he couldn't, but then David couldn't do it in good conscience. I don't think that was him being dopey personally. I think that was him trusting in God that God would, in due time, raise David up. In God's timing, he would raise up David and Really, we could learn a lot from that restraint and that integrity and that faithfulness, putting faith in God, not being wise in our own eyes, not trusting in our own strength of arms, our own cleverness, but rather trusting in the goodness of God, even as 
we're being wise within the bounds of faithfulness to God and God's promises and God's revealed word and what God has said is good and true. So in my book, this is a really good example that we should follow. We should incorporate it into how we relate to people and their families in particular. David's not taking out whatever frustration he still had pertaining to Saul on the descendants of Saul. He's not being vengeful. He's not being a tyrant. He is being generous. He's being kind. He's being gracious. He is administering justice in Israel and administering righteousness, which is translated in the previous chapter, equity at a certain point. But I think righteousness is a better word for it. In fact, out of 150 instances of that word, sadaka, in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word, sadaka, most every other instance is translated either righteousness, righteous, or right. So this is an example of that in his own personal dealings, but then he also is instructing others. So it's not just his own personal choices. He's setting an example. He's setting the tone. He's giving instructions. He's giving orders. He's establishing expectations. This is what I expect. If this is what David believes is right, and this is what David is doing, that sets the tone for others. Maybe when he makes a mistake and he doesn't do what he ought to do, say for instance, as we'll get into later with regards to Bathsheba and Uriah, Uriah, the Hittite, a faithful servant of David's, an honorable man, maybe people should not have been letting David set the tone. But when David is setting the tone in righteousness and doing what is right and in administering justice and showing mercy, doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with his God, it's a good thing. And that's why it's so important that we would meditate on the importance of self-control and restraint and doing what's right, even when the temptation is going to be very strong, to preserve oneself, to eliminate rivals, to eliminate potential threats, to eliminate somebody who has something that you want so you can take it from them. Even the temptation being very strong, understand that the most secure you could possibly be is to do what's right according to God and expect that God will reward and protect you himself. That's the kind of protection you want. And that's the kind of protection that comes from humbling yourself before the Lord, trusting in God's promises, meditating on his promises, meditating on what he has told us is good and true. But that said, not to skip on too fast and too quickly to carry on to current events. We do need to get to some current events items, and we will, starting with a piece from Not to Be about what the Census Bureau is saying regarding our population trends. So Edward Teach over at Not to Be is our friend, and he is going to teach us something about what the Census Bureau is saying. The Census Bureau says that unless we maintain high levels of immigration, we're going to have a major population bust by the end of the century. We all know it's coming. We've known it's been coming for decades. But seeing the U.S. Census Bureau spell it out like this is sobering. Edward Teach writes, Here is an embedded tweet from X by Scott Lincecum. How do you say that? L-I-N-C-I-C-O-M-E. I don't know. Scott L. on X. Quote, America will enter the 22nd century with a shrinking population unless immigration increases according to new U.S. Census Bureau projections. So 
Here we have a graph. You should check it out. I can't adequately uh, just read it for you, but you should look at it. Follow the link that I'll put in the description for this podcast episode and you'll find it. But here we have four options. We have projected decline in 2080. There's a line straight down the middle of this graph. We have with high immigration, a expectation that will go from 335 million to 435 million people in the U.S. There's a most likely outcome, which puts us at 366 million, growing by 30 million people over the next 60 or so years, 50 to 60 years. Actually, correction, the next, I suppose, 75 years, between now and 2100. There's low immigration projection, which puts us at 319 million. Again, that's a drop from 335 to 319 million. And then with zero immigration, the expectation is 226 million, down from 335. That is to say, over 100 million people will just not be here in the US. We'll just not have 100 million people that right now we expect to be maintaining systems and infrastructure and all the rest. So here's a quote, America will enter the 22nd century with a shrinking population unless immigration increases. Now, could I propose to you, could I put forward that there are other options? Say, for instance, Americans could uh, start having babies. We could incentivize what is more likely to bring up the birth rate for American citizens who are already in this country, who already speak the language, who are already acclimated to the culture. Uh, We will probably need to modify our culture any way you slice it. That's a fact. If we don't have any immigration and we have a drop of 100 million people over the next 70 to 80 years, well, we're going to have to modify our culture. Our culture will be modified and changed dramatically. If we have a huge influx of immigrants and all of a sudden 100 million, 200 million actually, from 226 with zero immigration to 435 with high immigration, we're talking about half of our country's people being not from here in our current makeup, our current composition, people coming in, immigrating from other places, having kids, us relying on them to have kids all the while. I guess we just keep on having kids like we have been having. That's going to be a major change if all of a sudden half of our people, 209 million, are either first generation, second or third generation immigrants. That'll change our culture. If we get it together and start having babies uh, like we should have been, like we should be, and stop being uh, incels for one or stop being uh, so in love with casual hookups, serial monogamy, two-income households where you have less than two children per couple, per marriage, per household, you know, if we are going to have that kind of an outcome where we have big families and marriages that stay together, people that get married, young people that get married younger than 30 (laughs) so that they have more years in which to have kids, that's going to require also a major change in our culture. I would be in favor of that last option. In fact, as we read through the options presented, the other options presented, thank you to Edward Teach for compiling them, we find that relying either 
entirely on immigration, high immigration levels to make up the difference, or in a moderate way, relying on immigration to make up the difference. Any way you slice it, the people who come to this country will have to retain something of the culture of where they came from that pertains to higher fertility, getting married younger, staying married, and having more kids. If they don't retain the culture of where they came from, where they have more children per household, more children per family, if they don't retain that culture and if they adopt ours instead, then we'll just have a whole bunch of people not from here also not having kids like we're not having kids, which is to say that the culture will just shift to what is the culture in the place that these people are coming from. But then if the reason they left those countries, say for instance, like Venezuela, is because of low economic opportunity, high political instability, high crime, then what they're bringing with them may not just be the kind of a culture, the kind of a mindset, the kind of attitudes and values that result in higher birth rates. They might also, in fact, I'm quite sure that they will in many cases, bring with them the cultural attitudes that lead to higher crime, less political stability, less economic opportunity. So yeah, we might have more people, but then I suppose the folks, the very smart people at the U.S. Census Bureau are expecting will continue to be the ones guiding everybody, will continue to be the ones making the decisions. Yeah, don't count on it. Don't count on it when the most energetic participants in the baby-making process will also then be the most energetic participants in the political process. And also, oh, by the way, unless you just say you guys can't vote, which will only work uh, for so long until they say, yep, we're tired of that. We don't have any representation in this government. We demand a seat at the table. You know, when that happens, then you don't have the folks with our cultural mindset here in America, here in the United States built up over going on three centuries. Uh, you don't have us making the political decisions, how to administer this population that we maintain. All of a sudden you have a mix. And so again, there's just no way around it. You're going to have to change the culture some way, some form of adjustment must happen or else I guess we're just on the way out and we're just dying. But then that's a cultural adjustment too. That's going to be a big impact on the global outlook. And odds are high that the places where there are higher birth rates, they're going to see a lion's share shift more to them with the global geopolitical decision-making. But continuing on with Edward Teach's post at Not The Bee, here are two basic facts the U.S. needs to confront in the wake of this really awful news. One, you cannot maintain a functioning society with a population collapse. It won't work. Everything you've spent decades or centuries building up, all the infrastructure, the economy, the way of life, everything depends on current population numbers, not a reduction in them. Take away 30% of a population over the course of 80 years, and you're going to see absolute Armageddon. Two, you cannot maintain your society as it is with massive immigration. If you have to effectively import your population increase, you're going to have a radically changed society. That's just the way it is. If your demographic spike comes from outside of the country, you're getting someone else's country, not your own. No way around that. Entirely right. Exactly right. I quite agree. He continues, these are our two options, folks, collapse or transformation. Short of having a ton more babies, that's what we're looking at over the remainder of the century. And the severe effects of the fertility crisis is going to become more apparent even before that. For instance, the U.S. is expected to age rapidly with people 65 years or older outnumbering children under 18 by 2029. That's wild, friends. 
That's wild. You know, we get it in our minds sometimes in a way that, you know, will lead to um, you know, maybe being pleasantly surprised. We get it into our minds that how things are right now will, that'll continue indefinitely. So if things are bad, we put too much stock in the projection out into the future that it's just going to get worse and worse. If it's been getting worse here recently, we think it's going to just get worse and worse and worse and worse. Or if things have gotten worse and they've kind of leveled off, we think mistakenly that that level off is just going to extend indefinitely into the future. No, no, no. Speaking of cultures changing as people come in from other countries and you're importing somebody else's country basically into your country and that changes the culture, changes the dynamic in your own country. Well, so also generationally, there is a difference in the culture and you know this. You know this instinctively, but I'm just drawing it out into the open because it's relevant here. We need to think about these things together side by side as Edward Teach is helpfully teaching us to. We know that the baby boomers have a different culture, right? They're part of, in the United States, they're part of the larger culture, but they have their own subculture generationally. Baby boomers are different in their mindset, in their approach to life, in their circumstance, generally speaking, their home ownership rates, even going back to when they were, say, for instance, my age, their home ownership rates are much, much higher. Their household wealth, their net worth is much higher relative to what ours is. Their debt load is much lower. Their share of political power is much higher. And of course, this is going to be the case, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, always that those who are older and more established are going to be in positions of power. But then it's not static. When in life we hit these milestones is not static. It's not fixed. Say, for instance, the milestone of getting married in the first place. That has changed dramatically over the last century. How many children each married couple has has also changed. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We wouldn't be talking about needing to do anything different because nothing would have changed. But of course, things have changed. For another thing, like I said, but let's draw it out more into the open, homeownership rates. How do homeownership rates relate to community engagement, political involvement, getting into the political process and participating with confidence? How does debt load influence? How does net worth influence? We know that those who have higher net worth are more likely to be influential in the political situation. They're more likely to be able to take time off or to hand, if they own the business, hand the business operations off to somebody who works for them. If there's more income for them to live off of because they've built up savings or this engine, this wealth creation engine is up and running now, they're going to be involved in the political process in a way that somebody who's working 50 or 60 hours a week just can't afford to. But then that's not static, right? Economic opportunity the economic circumstances, that's not static from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. As the baby boomers get old enough to retire and either stay in the workforce and hold on longer because they can't afford to retire because of inflation or their retirement funds have collapsed, you know, risky hedge fund decisions or bubbles burst or what have you. As they stay in the workforce for longer, that will have an effect. And if they drop out of the workforce and then they all retire and they're expecting a smaller number of young people to somehow pay a higher and higher share of their paychecks into social security and into 
a general tax that maintains everything, well then, that also will affect these things. And so there's no short-term solution. You cannot address this with short-term thinking. What you have to take into consideration is the outlook decades down the road. And we've been conditioned so much, and that I don't see mentioned here, but I'll mention it. I'll bring it into the conversation. We've been conditioned so much by the internet age and by our news media, which is primarily entertainment media, masquerading as news. You're not really getting an informed opinion. You're, get, you're getting the feelings that associate themselves with well-being uh, along the lines of what more traditionally, more historically would have meant you're informed and you feel good about being informed. But we get conditioned by news media, by social media to have attention deficit disorder. A lack of discipline, a lack of self-control, a lack of discipline, a lack of purposefulness in what we consume and how we process the information and what we do with it, if anything, has set us up for getting married later in life, having fewer children, and we're going to have to wean ourselves off of thinking about things in days and weeks, maybe months, if we're an especially good planner. We're going to have to start thinking more medium and long-term outlook. What do my decisions right now portend for my children when they're my age? If I'll have children, I mean, I guess that's a, a prerequisite question too. But if I have children, which I do, I, I have lots of children. If everybody was doing what I'm doing, then we would not be having this conversation, but then most people aren't and we get weird looks and funny comments from lots of folk. But what will my children have in the way of opportunity? What strengths will they have to bring to bear? What weaknesses and vulnerabilities do I need to help them to identify and at least to know and to be honest about for when they're my age. Also, my children's children. Will my children have children in turn when it's their time? Will they get married? Will they have kids? Will they have families? Very many of us have regarded that kind of thinking as oppressive because we've been fed a, a, a bunch of horse pucky. <laughs> we've been... Uh, <clears throat> We've been kept in the dark and fed excrement like mushrooms as to what that will mean when the bill comes due eventually, when the baby boomers do retire and they pass off mantle of leadership to the younger generations, Gen X, the millennials in turn in due time, Gen Z, it's going to be high debt, lower economic opportunity, lots of regulation way too high of taxes, a bureaucracy, if we don't clean it up, if we don't adjust these things soon, a bureaucracy that monitors your every move to ensure compliance, regulates and permits or prohibits anything you would do to get out of this mess. And so it has to hit the wall at some point. And maybe, just maybe, this begins to dawn on people in less of an abstract theoretical sense, more of a concrete practical sense, by the year 2029, when people 65 and over outnumber children under 18. Back to Edward Teach. Before we start running out of people, we're going to start running out of young people. That's almost as bad. You need young people for your society to thrive. If you have way more old folks than young whippersnappers, you're going to be out of business real fast. And note well, we've known about this looming crisis for a long time. 
It's not going away and it's not going to end well. Having more babies is the answer. How likely is it that current generations will have enough to reverse the trend? I don't think you need a demographic expert to know the answer. But then here's what I'll say. This is where, again, we need to be careful as we consider these things that we don't bake the bad attitudes, the wrong thinking into our assessment of the problem, because then we're going to either suppose that there are no solutions, and that's insane. That's not true. And we'll just throw in the towel and just wait, you know, (laughs) we'll just wait until uh, it all falls apart. Or if you bake the problem into the solution or into your assessment of the problem and therefore solutions, you'll just keep doing more and more of the same and expecting different results, which is, again, it's insane. That's not what reasonable people do if they want to have a good outcome. So why do I say we're baking the problem into our assessment of the problem? Because we're looking at the macro and then we're saying, well, I guess that's what it is. Well, individually, we each have choices to make. I'm not saying it's easy, but then that's just it. It doesn't need to be easy. It doesn't. It's expensive to have a big family. I know that. (laughs) Believe me. Believe me. Uh, It carries with it quite a lot of stress that you have to give over to the Lord in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, presenting your requests to God, making your requests known to God, being anxious for nothing. That is a daily thing. Sometimes it's at least a weekly, monthly thing that you have to do that as you look at the math and you say, man, this is is expensive. This is exhausting. Well, yes, it is. But it's an investment. And you have to think of having children, getting married as a kind of investment that is profitable, that is beneficial for you personally. If you're thinking of it in macro terms, oh, I need to save the country. Yeah, you're not going to save the country. And you know that, and I know that. But don't suppose that just because it doesn't save the country, that means there's no benefit in it. See, that's another way that we've gotten into this problem is we're thinking too national too international, and we've been conditioned to do so, in part, again, by that same entertainment news media that gives us the illusory feeling of being informed about what, right? About what's going on in Washington, D.C., about what's going on on the other side of the planet. All the while, are we getting accurate information about what's going on in our own community? If there is accurate information, that might depend on whether we have any interest in it, But then if there is accurate information, are we availing ourselves of it? Are we doing anything with the information? Shift your attention, ladies and gentlemen, to if you're not married, how do you get into a situation where every man can have his own wife and every woman can have her own husband because there's so much temptation to sexual immorality? How do we get into the situation? Well, for starters, young men, get some marketable skills Develop a good work ethic, pay attention to details, be courteous, be respectful, be professional. Look to how you manage your money and how you make that money and how you spend it, how do you invest it, how do you have a good reputation, how do you be respectable and find some pretty young lass and explain to her how you love Jesus and you love working hard and you think she's pretty great and what would she say to getting married? When you're old enough, of course, and when you've got the capacity to provide for and protect her, try to get to that point as soon as you can. And then, oh, by the way, plan for doing what it takes to preserve her capacity to have babies. Expect that. Don't try to fight that. Expect it. 
yes, it's going to be difficult, but expect that it's rewarding in turn. You know, shoot for the capacity to provide and protect, get married, provide for and protect your wife, and have lots of babies. Have babies as early and often as you can and provide for and protect those babies, just like you provide for and protect your wife and try to provide at a sufficient level to where she can stay home and raise those babies. And oh, by the way, another piece of this is we've got to do something about the educrats and the out-of-touch elected officials and the talking heads and the teachers' unions who want to destroy your capacity to educate your children at home or to send them to somebody who's going to give them a good education because the public schooling system is a failure. So look to that as you go. Keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on there. Be involved. Be engaged. Take an interest. Speak up. Vote but also encourage others to vote accordingly. And if you'll do that, then you will have some insulation in the medium and long term. You'll be insulated to that extent as you're trusting in the good Lord above and you're believing that what he says is good and will be blessed, is good and will be blessed. As you're doing that, you at least will be insulated and you'll perhaps encourage others around you to do likewise. And if enough of us do that, well then, yeah. That'll reverse the trend in a positive way, in a good way, in a beneficial way. And even if not enough of us do that, if there's a storm coming, you probably should be getting your ducks in a row to do this thing because the only way we're going to work our way out of that storm is stopping those things that have brought us to this point. Stop doing the foolish things and expecting different results, expecting good beneficial results. If you've been getting worse and worse results from doing the foolish things, stop doing the foolish things. Get wise. Learn. Look for people who are going to help you to be wise and to correct your misunderstandings. For that matter, if you can surround yourself with other people who love Jesus, who believe in his word, that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Children are a heritage from Yahweh, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Surround yourself with people who believe that also and who will encourage you as you live it out. People you can encourage as they live it out. People who are going to be reinforcing that instead of tearing it down and tearing you down as you're trying to work on it. That's how we get out of this. Or if we can't, if it can't be avoided at this point, that's how we weather the storm because boy, howdy, this is a storm. This is a storm brewing. And it's going to be a big one. For our next story, though, let's hop on over to the Daily Wire. Daily Wire News has a report from the day before yesterday. DeSantis rips tech execs for groveling to CCP dictator Xi Jinping, empowering an adversary, he calls it. I'll play for you. Cut one, and then I have some comments. Take a listen. And, you know, I look to see what's going on, what went on in San Francisco the last couple days. You know, they, the city is in squalor. There's poop on the streets. There's people using drugs, people getting mugged, crime, all this stuff. But then Xi Jinping's come into town, and what do they do? They get the poop off the sidewalk. They get to clear the homeless. They stop the drugs. They stop the crime. And then you have this meeting where Xi's there, and you got some of these American CEOs basically just groveling in front of this dictator. And that just shows you 
even with where where we are now uh in china wants to have more power over our country but how many people in this country bend the knee to the whims of the chinese communist party those guys make money on wall street and stuff uh but they're empowering an adversary at the expense of the well-being of the american people so we cannot be in a position where we're relying on an adversary for key things that are uh, necessary for our national survival so we are going to reshore supply chains not everything every component has to necessarily be here i want as much as possible but there's friendly nations where supply chains work and that that's that's great but relying on china is a big big mistake uh, i think what you're going to need to do, do is you are going to have tax and regulatory policy that's going to incentivize the reshoring i don't think you could just say reshore i think this has happened because there's economic incentives that have pushed us into that direction so we will have uh we will champion incentives and restructure some of the things so that it makes it economical uh to be here in the united states and that's well said uh, that's what I'll say. First off, I agree. I agree. I agree with Ron DeSantis. He is my top pick. I like what he's done in Florida, and I like who he is. I like his platform. I like the positions he's taken. Maybe you think he's biffed it. Maybe you think he's totally out of the runnings for the Republican nomination for the 2024 race. Lots could happen between now and November of next year. So I am going to continue on saying uh, vote DeSantis. Vote DeSantis in the primaries. And if he's not the guy, if it's Trump, well, then it's Trump. The alternative is uh, more of the same. More of the same and decline is a choice. I agree with Ron DeSantis. I don't think that's just uh, a talking point. I think that's true. It's a very succinct way to sum up the current trajectory, the current malaise to say that decline is a choice. And right now, our elites, the people who have the most money, who've been making the most money off of maintaining the status quo, maintaining the current trajectory, their incentives line up with accepting all of the rest of us who don't profit off of this special relationship with China, favored nation, trading status, uh, cleaning up the streets in San Francisco, only when Xi Jinping is coming to town, waving communist flags, having Marine Honor Guard hold the flag of the CCP as Xi is walking by, having Xi Jinping's vehicle almost hit a Marine as he's standing there at attention to welcome, to guard for one, but then to honor guard with, of all things, a Chinese flag. This all is acceptable to those who have been incentivized for a long, long time and they're addicted to the incentives. It's very profitable for them. It's not profitable for us. And whether DeSantis gets the nomination for the Republican Party's shot at the White House in 2024, he's my favorite. I just no two ways about it. I like him best and I think he is the best option, but then that doesn't mean he's going to get it. And that doesn't mean that people won't continue making arguments that they find to be uh, stronger in favor of Trump or whoever else, or against Trump and against Republicans. If they think the strongest argument for America's well-being moving forward is Republicans just keep on losing, whether they're Republicans, and in some cases this is Republicans, who think that's what's best for America is Republicans to lose and Democrats to keep the ball and you know just keep the ball until we hit the wall, and then they can be blamed for it, 
those folks, uh, I disagree with them. And I think they're part of why we're in the trouble that we're in because they too have accepted the malaise and they uh, don't have a vision for how do we get ourselves out of this. DeSantis is right that you change the incentive structure and then you will get different outcomes. You'll You'll differentiate only when you change the uh, incentive structure. But that's not just true with regards to the very wealthy big tech CEOs who have been profiting so handsomely, living like kings, because they have uh, a free pass to operate in China. They stay in Xi's good graces. This is also true of we ourselves. And going back to the previous story about US census data spelling uh, trouble showing that we're in trouble in the coming decades because of population decline, declining fertility. As soon as 2029, we're going to have more people over 65 than under 18 in this country. The incentives have to be looked at. When states like Colorado and the State Board of Education are looking at doing away with funding for any other option, right? Any other option besides public schools in this state and trying to starve and choke off supply routes for alternatives to the public schools. One, that's a recognition that (laughs) when parents have an option, they don't want the public schools, most of them. Uh, But for another thing, that is proof of what I'm saying, that when the incentives line up, you know, the, the disincentives of the public education, but also the incentives for pursuing a different option, homeschooling your kids, keeping them home, uh, in our case, we use MyTech High funds to pay for uh, quite a lot of materials, resources, curriculum. Enrichment opportunities that are taken away from homeschoolers and private schools will cause many to stop uh, considering if they've been strongly considering and threatening that they would homeschool their kids or they would send their kids to a private school instead of the public schools. All of a sudden, you change the math for them and you'll change but whether they make that threat. And for that matter, many who have said, we're going to shift our kids to private schools or homeschooling will reconsider. And they'll say, okay, maybe we can't afford this. And they'll send their kids back to the public schools. And so the folks maintaining the status quo understand well that incentives and disincentives economic will make a big difference in the kinds of choices that families make, parents make. And if the Republican Party, for instance, which is really our only uh, hope politically as far as an organized opposition to maintaining the current trajectory, if the Republican Party wants to win and they want America to win, then they have to look at the incentives and the disincentives for young families. When it's cost prohibitive to get married young and to have children and to raise those children in the home and to give them a good education when it's cost prohibitive to do that, you'll get less of it. You'll get more young people just not getting married, living with friends perpetually, delaying their maturity because what's the point? What's the urgency to mature for one, but then also where's the opportunity to mature? You'll see fewer people getting married. You'll see more people still doing the things that married people do, but just doing it outside of the context of marriage because they can't commit. They don't want to commit not when the incentives are so strong to stay unmarried and fool around. You'll see fewer babies born. You'll see more and more immigration from other countries as 
that is sought by the powers that be, the establishment, the elites, just like they'll offshore our economic opportunity. They'll offshore major components of their business because that's more profitable for them. They'll also import labor from other countries sooner than they will change the incentive structure here for Americans, for U.S. citizens. And yet the Republicans, if they're muddy on that, if they say to DeSantis, oh no, that's too extreme. Well, (laughs) what you mean is that would disrupt the status quo. Uh, Translation, when you call it extreme, what you really just mean is it's disruptive. Why are you feeling threatened by a disruption? Because the status quo has been very profitable. Only when the incentive structure changes for the political operatives in the Republican Party, the donors to the Republican Party, the folks who organize the local branch of Republican parties, you know, the Republican Party, RNC, but the local organizations in your county, in your city, only when the incentive structure changes for them to where it's incentivized for them to disrupt our current decline, will they actually be willing to commit in a meaningful way. And in the meantime, as we'll get into here in a minute, we're going to get more of Republicans saying, no, 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 we don't want that. We don't want that. We don't want to, let's just not change anything. Well, meanwhile, the only people who are changing anything then are the folks on the left, the radical leftists, the Democrats, and they're in lockstep. They maintain party discipline. Republicans, when they think that they are ready to maintain party discipline, unfortunately, all too often, it's to clamp down on people like Ron DeSantis who are offering meaningful differences, meaningful changes instead of just maintain course. And that is a losing strategy. It, that is decline as a choice. Back to not to be though. For our next consideration, this one will keep brief, but it's important. U.S. hospitals are suing the Biden administration for crippling their websites, but the feds say big tech like Meta and Google are using the sites to illegally take patient data. As Mr. Retrops writes just this morning, Want to go to your local hospital's website to access your patient portal and information about your health? Well, the Biden administration says that probably violates the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. HIPAA. H-I-P-A-A. I think that's how you say it. That's how I read it. And to stop those violations, the feds have told hospitals across the nation they need to stop using third-party tools that help their website function, particularly those from big tech companies like Google and Meta. And we're not talking about crazy website tools here either. They're tools like embedded maps, in case for some reason you might actually want to know how to get to the hospital before you bleed to death. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, has threatened that fines for HIPAA violations against the hospitals will be assessed for every IP address that accesses the hospital's websites, considering that one HIPAA Violation runs between $100 and $50,000. You probably won't need to worry about getting to that hospital after all. It will be fined out of existence. But complying with the HHS isn't that easy. Hospitals say that removing these tools will severely affect their ability to provide patient care. So the American Hospital Association and several hospital systems have teamed up to file a lawsuit against the new regulations. On the other hand, there's some reason for the government's concern. Earlier this year, telehealth startup Cerebral 
admitted that it shared the private health data of 3.1 million patients with Google, Meta, and TikTok because they were using third-party analytics tools. Quote, if an individual created a cerebral account, the information disclosed may have included name, phone number, email address, date of birth, IP address, cerebral, client ID number, and other demographic or information. If, in addition to creating a cerebral account, an individual also completed any portion of cerebral's online health assessment, uh, mental health self-assessment, the information disclosed may also have included the service the individual selected, assessment responses, and certain associated health information. If, in addition to creating a cerebral account and completing cerebral's online mental health self-assessment, an individual also purchased a subscription plan from cerebral, the information disclosed may also have included subscription plan type, appointment dates, and other booking information, treatment, and other clinical information, health insurance, pharmacy benefit information, for example, plan name and group member numbers, and insurance copay amount. Uh, that's pretty much everything, uh, right? That's that's everything. I agree with Mr. Retrops. That's pretty much all the patient's data. What's disturbing is when you find out how many of the big tech execs either met Xi Jinping in San Francisco with a standing ovation at a dinner held to honor him this past week, or in the case of TikTok, when you consider that TikTok is an agent of, it's an arm of the CCP. When you realize that, what you basically get is 3.1 million patients giving their data, not just to big tech, but also by turn to the CCP. Do you trust the CCP with that information? Do you trust their intentions are good or innocuous? You shouldn't. So this is where we get a concern for turnkey totalitarianism vis-a-vis the CCP being able to go after or identify targets in the U.S. And no, I don't think that's crazy. Identifying targets in the U.S. who are likely to work counter what the CCP's vision for the good life is, what their vision of the world is. And don't for a moment suppose that these companies, having already compromised to the extent that they have, wouldn't in due time, if they haven't already, give your data over and say to CCP, if the cost of doing business in China and having access to your market is the most intimate information about Americans who seek healthcare, so be it. We'll leave it to you guys to figure out what you do with the data. Again, the incentive structure, you see it come into play here. Disincentives are put in place, fines up to $50,000 per IP address. The incentives on the other side, though, are definitely there. And if nothing's done about the incentives on the other side of it, as pertains to China, well, then all China has to do is offer more money. That's all. Then it becomes a bidding war. How much is our government willing to disincentivize betraying the American people to the CCP relative how much the CCP is willing to incentivize just giving total control, total access to our most intimate details, which in the case of their own people, always results in control. The CCP collects information all the time about everybody in the CCP to the end of controlling them. If they're collecting data on us, it is also to the end of controlling us. It's not, hey, we have this altruistic desire to scientifically help people to have better health. No, it's not better health in a narrow sense where your liberty, your freedom, your volition will be preserved. No, it's health in a Marxist rubric, in a Marxist paradigm. 
which is to say the healthiest thing for you is to let the CCP make all the decisions. And if Meta and TikTok and Google have largely come to terms with this idea that all of American society, the whole world's people should be ruled by the experts who know better than they do, better than the individual men, women, and children do what's best for them, what's good for them, and that our choices should all be engineered, nudged here, there, and everywhere. Well then, it's half a dozen of one and six of the other. But again, too, it's like Ron DeSantis is saying, this boils down to decline being a choice. It's not decline to the people who maintain this trajectory because, again, they've profited handsomely and they continue to. And that's why they don't want it to change. They don't want the Apple cart to be upset. But then that is to say, too, what do they do with their data? They use that data collected from you, about you, that you didn't realize you were giving over to them. They use that data to maintain the status quo. That's why <laughs> That's why they collect it. If nothing is done about that, then the sky's the limit on what might be done to manipulate your incentives. And you may not even know it. See, that's the danger with the metadata that Google and Meta and TikTok collect is you don't even know how they're using that data to engineer your choices, what choices are available to you. And if it doesn't work on you and it just works on everybody around you to where you're so drowned out by a chorus of useful idiots around you thinking, oh, this is what's good. And that's what's good. Even to the extent of praising this past week on TikTok, Osama bin Laden saying he was right because young people are discovering his letter to America from 2002. The sky's the limit on how your choices will be engineered and limited artificially or made to appear inevitable. This all boils down to what incentives do you perceive? And are you thinking short-term? Are you thinking only about convenience, only about a quick buck, or what disincentives do you perceive? What costs do you perceive as being attached to short-term benefits? What costs in the medium and long-term? Read the fine print. Back to the Daily Wire, though. We'll just keep bouncing back and forth between the Daily Wire and not the bee. Leif, or Leif, LeMahieu, published a piece yesterday at the Daily Wire. Judge rejects efforts to kick Trump off ballot in Colorado under 14th Amendment. I don't have much more to say about it besides that, but this is good news. This is happy. It's very concerning when Democrats and the radical left start pushing to not even include the man on the ballot. That's very concerning. If our judiciary is still independent enough to be able to say, no, 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 can't do that. Uh, That's happy. That's a happy sign because we need a system of checks and balances where you don't just have the left dictating terms and then anybody who says no to them is labeled an insurrectionist. Anybody who double checks, cross-examines, criticizes them, presents a a counter-narrative is an insurrectionist, a threat to our democracy. Uh, What's a big threat to our democracy is when you start saying your opposition is not even going to be included on the ballot. Why? Because you expect that they might win. You're afraid that they might win. Why are you afraid that they might win? Because this is going very badly for a lot of people economically. Their economic opportunities are much diminished. Their peace of mind, their physical safety is much declined because the rule of law has been subverted. Our bureaucracies in far too many cases, far too many cases have been shown 
willing to go after conservatives, particularly wherever conservatives might start to get some traction on accomplishing a change of course, that's being labeled a threat to our democracy, dangerous. And then again, any information collected on them can be used, will be used against them to conduct still more surveillance or to harass them, to keep them so tied up in the courts that they can't even campaign. They can't message what it is that they're running on. But then again, hopefully that backfires actually for those who have decided to resort to banana republic dictatorial tactics to subvert the rule of law, to subvert our political process in this country. And that's what it is. Hopefully it backfires because then the narrative is you guys are cheaters. You guys are rigging the system. You guys are actually committing election fraud right now. And the material fact that proves that is one prosecution after another, after another, after another, one frivolous lawsuit after another, after another to get this guy knocked out. So you actually at a certain point see the momentum of the left so angry, so hateful towards Donald Trump and everybody connected to him Their momentum just carries them right over the cliff edge, possibly not just being told no by a judge. No, we're not going to remove him from the ballot, but also being told absolutely not by the voters. I hope, I hope the incentives have to be considered. If the disincentives for supporting Trump and the Republicans rack up and up and up and up and up, or the perceived disincentives rack up and up, then it really won't make a difference. If the incentives are all on the side of giving the Democrats what they want, or the disincentives are all in favor of telling them no, well, then that's how people will behave. Absent a moral compass, I should say, I should clarify. If they don't believe that truth and goodness and beauty are objective, ultimately deriving existence and definition from God, if they're just utilitarians, if they're very simplistic and short-term in their thinking, if their choices are too easily engineered, then they look at the incentives and the disincentives and they say, yep, okay. But then the economic reality, it's hard to argue with. Democrat spokespeople, pollsters, supposed reporters and journalists, but really just activists for the leftist cause, express surprise again and again every time they're confronted with the polling numbers. Hey, how do you feel the economy is doing? Oh man, why? Why are so many people just not feeling build back better? Why are they not feeling how good things are? Well, maybe because they weren't bought. They haven't been bought and paid for like you people have been. Your incentive structure, your economic reality is very different than theirs. And you can tell them that it's raining when you pee on their leg, but mm-mm. At a certain point, they realize this is a lie. This is a lie and it's getting worse. Uh, Groceries are getting more and more expensive. Utilities costs are getting more and more expensive. Affordable housing is an increasing problem, especially as you tell the whole world's worth of immigrants, yeah, come on in. Especially as you regulate, continue to maintain regulations against the most affordable and plentiful supplies of energy, housing, Uh, materials, the materials that go into building a house, who all can build a house and at what cost translates into who all can buy a house and get moved in. You know, all of this, right? All of this is bound up in whether or not Trump is going to be the nominee for 2024. 
And if the nominee for the Republican Party, which he probably will be, will he win the general election? But all that too will make a huge difference on whether America continues on the trajectory that the U.S. Census Bureau is predicting absent a huge influx of immigrants. Again, from that story that Edward Teach posted, again, the 2100 projection, which might seem like it's forever off, but it's really not. They're projecting, we see an over 100 million, 110 million person drop in our country's population by 2100 with zero immigration. By contrast, high immigration, they expect 435 million. But then that is to say, they expect, they're anticipating 210 million people to be from other countries. And you only get there between now and then if you continue holding open the door for illegal immigration en masse from foreign countries. That's what you'll get between now and the year 2100. It won't be like 2100 arrives and boom, right? All of a sudden, here's 210 million out of 435 million people in America being foreign born or first or second generation immigrants. No, in order to get to that high immigration scenario, you'll have to have high immigration between now and then. And the people who are immigrating, continuing to have lots and lots of babies. But then we're already getting to the point where people who snuck across the border illegally are taking their families and going home to Venezuela of all places because it was better there. So then you'll have to, if you want to continue encouraging even the immigrants to come here, you're going to have to do something about the problem of unaffordable housing, unaffordable energy, unaffordable food. And the Democrats don't have any fresh ideas. They just have more and more of the same. Just throw more money at it. Let's import more illegal immigrants. Let's give more access to abortion, which is crazy. It's like, wow, how do you not see that that would be another tool in the tool bag is stop aborting babies that are born. You know, in some states, it's as many as a quarter of all pregnancies being terminated via abortion. You can't tell me that that wouldn't make a big difference in whether we have a replacement rate. You know that it would, but you can't stop there. Make abortion illegal across the U.S. and then encourage young people to get married younger by giving them tax incentives for the first several years of their marriage and giving them more tax incentives, more tax breaks when they have children. Do that. Stop regulating into oblivion economic growth, economic opportunity, job creation. Stop constricting competition in the markets because you blame you know capitalism. You, you blame capitalism for how we got into this situation in the first place. It wasn't more and more capitalism that destroyed our economic output. It was more and more socialism, more and more legal plunder. See also Frederick Bastiat. Yeah, throw in the towel on that already. And when young people are taxed less when they get married and stay married, when they're taxed less when they have children, and the more children they have, the less they're taxed, you'll see people who are from here having bigger families, being able to provide for them, being able to stay together, being incentivized to stay together, giving their children good quality education because, oh, by the way, school choice should absolutely be of a piece with this. You don't do that? Well, then you don't actually want to fix the problem and you don't have any fresh ideas. You just don't care because it's profitable for you. That's what I say. It's more profitable for you to maintain 
the status quo, even at the expense of everybody else in the country, everybody else in the world, really. It's more profitable for you to maintain course. If you don't have any fresh ideas and you're not willing to hear them, you're not willing to articulate them, at least doing nothing is more profitable. But then we know where that's headed. We know where that's going. And that's to something like societal collapse, the end of America as we know it. But then maybe that's of a piece too with your vision of the good life, the same motivation for pursuing these socialistic and ultimately communistic goals and cozying up to the Chinese Communist Party. The same motivation also drives you not thinking that the collapse of the United States of America would be such a bad thing after all. For our next story, and we'll spend just a brief amount of time on this, and then you can check out the full write-up for yourself by Corrine Murdoch over at The Daily Wire, published the day before yesterday, New Jersey Teachers Union calls for end of basic skills test for teachers. Really to boil it down and make it very simple, having a basic skills test for teachers is hindering, they're saying, they're claiming, the ability to recruit teachers. Why is that? You and I know. It's because the teachers don't have the skills. It wouldn't be hindering their ability to recruit teachers if the teachers had the skills. So the reason they're doing away with the skills test is because the teachers that they want to recruit, they can't get enough who are skilled. And so they'll just accept a lower standard for their teachers. But then this is rich in my view, because of being such a big proponent of home education with one of the very typical arguments made against the continued legalization of homeschooling in the U.S., or leaving it fairly unregulated. One of the big arguments that public school proponents, people on that bandwagon will make is that parents don't have, moms don't have a teaching degree. They're not experts in this. They don't know what's best for their child. They don't have the skills that somebody who went to college specifically to learn how to be an educator uh, has. They don't have those skills They're not qualified to teach. What qualifies you to teach your kids math and reading and history and science? What qualifies you to teach them an art class? Well, what's interesting is increasingly you're seeing, especially blue states say, you know what, let's just put off to the side. Let's just do away with a basic competency test for high school graduation in our public schools. Let's just do, in the case of New Jersey, let's just do away with a basic competency test for our teachers in the first place because we just need teachers. Well, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. What now stands between you and embracing school choice? I think you're giving it away that this isn't about how competent the teachers are and it's not about how competent the students are at the end of their time with you. This is about control, friends. It's about control. You in the teachers' union, you who are educrats, you who love a statist solution for every problem. You've never encountered a problem that you didn't think more regulation and more taxation would fail to solve. You think every problem, real or imagined, requires more regulation, requires more taxation, but then you're strangling opportunity for innovation. You're strangling American liberty. You're strangling the very conduit for working ourselves out of this box. You've put us into a no-win scenario if you say parents don't have the skills, but we really don't care if the teachers have the skills. So long as they went and got our 
indoctrination for them, right? We want them to indoctrinate the kids. So we need to make sure that the teachers are also indoctrinated in their colleges and universities. But we really don't care if they have the skills. And, they, and you know, the kids too, we, you know, we're not all that concerned with whether the kids have the skills in order to graduate. So then aren't you admitting that this is a failed system, a failed system. And also at the same time, simultaneously, you don't want parents to be able to take their kids out of the failed system and homeschool them and send them to a private school where they're going to have a chance at success. You know, not a guarantee of success, but a chance of being successful and innovating to make it a successful outcome for their kids. This is about control, plain and simple. You know it. I know it. They know it. Will they admit it? No. They'll dress it up and they'll claim that they know what's best and they're the ones who really care. I find that deeply offensive. No, no. You don't care about my child's welfare, my child's outcome. That's my job. You care about getting paid. You care about making tenure. You care about pushing your ideology. I care about protecting my kids from the likes of you. We are not the same. You're right. But what differentiates is not how skilled a homeschooling parent is in the mainstream. By and large, I would say a parent is more expert than somebody who went to four, six, eight years of college to learn education, which by the way, you're not teaching the kids education. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> you, you didn't become an expert in math and now you teach math. You became an expert in education and now you teach math. That doesn't mean you know how to teach math. You might be teaching them very competently the wrong things. And that's exactly what's been happening. And it's okay with the people who want to maintain control and they want to maintain the status quo, but we can't let them, right? They're wrong and it's extraordinarily dangerous that this would continue. You can't, you can't fix the whole system just yourself and I can't either. But what you can do, you can keep your own house in order. You can mind your own affairs. You can aspire to live a quiet life, working with your hands, minding your own affairs, being dependent on no one. These people want you to be entirely dependent on them. And they're okay with relaxing basic skills tests for teachers in order to maintain that. I think they're losing their grip. I think they're losing their grasp. They're going to get more insistent, more adamant before they're finally forced to give it up. But in the meantime, in the short term, I think they're going to go after homeschoolers in a bigger way, go after private schoolers in a bigger way to try and starve them of the resources on which they depend to maintain their course. We have to not throw in the towel as they continue to do this because they're going to do it more and more. For our next to last story though, speaking of education, speaking of immigration, the Denver Post has a article up from this morning, 6 a.m., by Jessica Seaman, titled, Denver Schools Swell with More Than 2,000 New Migrant Students as District Scrambles to Meet Kids' Needs. DPS Hiring Bilingual Teachers as Schools Create More Classroom Space Seek Mental Health Support. Now, that's all the more I'm going to read about it. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go check it out for yourself. This is what you will see more and more of if the folks warning at the U.S. Census Bureau that we need much more immigration between now and 2100 to avoid population collapse, societal collapse. If they get their way and if the status quo folks who are willing to offshore your jobs and import immigrants to make up for you not having babies, not getting married, even as you are less and less able to afford getting married and having babies. Uh, if those folks have their way, you'll just get more and more of this. And this is part of the transition to what they've decided is 
for the best. And this is just what they think is okay because, hey, you know, you're a global citizen. But then increasingly what you'll find is as their mindset is allowed to maintain course on offshoring uh, your job and importing migrants to do more menial tasks, you know, cleaning their houses and picking their fruit and watching their kids during the day and, and things like that, as they're importing more and more people to make up for you not having children, not me, right? I'm, I'm doing my part, but you probably aren't. Um, <laughs> maybe you are. I, I hope you are. I hope you will. But as they are able to maintain this course, we will just get more and more of huge influxes of children from other countries for whom English, if they know it at all, it's a second language and it is probably not spoken in the home by their parents. Their parents probably speak Spanish and that's fine to speak Spanish. My kids are learning Spanish, but you will get more and more of this where it will be at the same time as skills tests are relaxed for the teachers, competence tests for the kids to graduate high school as both alike are relaxed or done away with entirely, simultaneously, you'll have a demand for increased funding to build new facilities, to hire more teachers, whether they're skilled or not, to at least watch kids while the parents are at work. And then in that case, if competence in these subjects is not necessary to graduate, and if skill on the part of the teachers is not necessary to hire them and retain them, uh, what you get is less and less of even the veneer, even the illusion of this being an education for the kids who are going off to it. It's more and more of a daycare center. It's more and more of a babysitting operation while the parents, ideally both parents, enter the workforce because that's really what the, the folks at the very top making the decisions, donating to candidates, picking winners and losers who will actually be on the ballot in far too many cases. Those folks get what they want. They get inexpensive labor. They get a maintenance of the status quo for them, which has been very profitable. And then what will they do in the very next phase? And they have been doing it for decades. They'll turn to the folks that they've just imported to make up the difference for Americans who are complaining and getting harder to manage because they see their country slipping away and they see their freedom slipping, slipping away, increasingly being denied. Oh, no, you don't have a right to that. No, no, no. That was a privilege, right? You'll hear that kind of phrase. Such and such is not a right. It's a privilege. And we will take that privilege away to yank the chain, to yank that choke chain on you. And if you can't go anywhere, well, then what are you going to do about it? You're going to heal. That's what you're going to do. We'll see more and more of this. And it will actually make worse. It will exacerbate the already present, very obvious gap between how much political power, how much wealth, how much economic uh, determination is by fewer and fewer people, you will have more and more income disparity as the resources are shifted to the children of illegal immigrants. You'll have more and more of a widening gulf as U.S. citizens who don't think of themselves as global citizens, they think of themselves as citizens of the United States, are increasingly told, yeah, that country doesn't exist anymore. That's a figment of your imagination, if it ever existed. And we're going to rewrite the history. And if you maintain that, no, 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 that's not true. I remember They'll just say, okay, we're going to give you a written warning. We're going to give you a strike on your account. You do that again, we're going to have to suspend your account. We're going to have to terminate you. This is what has been happening. This is what is happening. This is what the people who profit off of the status quo want 
more and more of. This is oppressive. This is wicked. Not people coming to America to seek a better life. That's not wicked. But it is untoward if they're just coming in without permission. And it is untoward if you or I doing something that we, by rights, have every freedom to do will be penalized on a case-by-case basis. And we're at the mercy of folks who scrutinize our every move, our every action, our every word, engineering our choice. And if that fails, then they just say, well, our community standards, right? You violated our community standards. And so now we've got to silence you. Now we've got to fine you. Now we've got to take away your privileges, so-called. Those people, if they're met with, by and large, passivity or enthusiastic participation, what will they do? They will do more of the same. And it will get worse, and the oppression will get more and more severe. The left believes that this is not a problem. They believe that this is the solution. This is the fruition of Barack Obama's hope and change. This is Biden's, or at least his advisors and his managers, handlers, definition of building back better. It is to cement in the fraud and the legal theft, the legal plunder to make it impossible for anybody to ever jeopardize it. That's their view of build back better. And so if you say, hey, this is a real problem, what they'll do is if you have been profiting and you risk it all, say in the case of Donald Trump, for instance, they'll say, oh, you, you liar. Let's take a look at the receipts. Let's take a look at your business. Let's see if we can yank your business license. Let's see if we can fine you into oblivion. Let's see if we can tie you up in the courts. If you have not profited off of this because you weren't accepting bribes, They'll say, oh, look at this loser, right? They'll exclude you from the opportunities and then they'll turn right around and they'll pretend that they have amnesia and they'll say that you having not gone to the school, that they didn't want you to feel welcome in, you having not gotten the job that they passed you over for promotion to or getting hired for because they had very strict DEI requirements that they were trying to meet. They'll say, you not having that job, not having this education is the reason to exclude you from consideration when you give input. Or if that fails, if you are adamant and you say, no, 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 listen, I know you're trying to write me off, but I'm not going to let you. They'll try and put you on a terrorist watch list. They'll characterize you as a potential domestic terrorist. They'll imply that you're spreading misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. And see, this is how they lock it down, is they make... The truth, so malleable, the truth is just whatever they say it is, which is to say that the truth is whatever advances their vision of the good life. If their vision of the good life is informed by an incentive structure that's perverse and unsustainable and at root increasingly Marxist, then yeah, you you might be lying if you criticize that, actually. But then you have to understand this is the biggest reason why parents need to have the ability, they need to be supported in making the choice that they believe is best for their children receiving a good quality education. This is why it's so imperative. If you're thinking short-term about, oh, well, but what if so-and-so doesn't talk to me anymore? What if so-and-so, you know, doesn't vote for me again? What if I lose my re-election bid? What if that, what if If you're thinking short-term, well then I guess we just wait, you know, we'll just wait until the storm hits and yeah, it's, it's going to be a big one. It's going to be the equivalent of a cat five hurricane. But if you're thinking medium and long-term, you have to admit, you have to recognize this is headed for destruction unless we change it, unless we say parents have 
the right. We insist that parents have the right and their tax dollars go so much farther when they're educating their own children or when when their kids are going to a private school. Their tax dollars go so much farther than when we demand they send their kids to a public school where the teachers don't have to be skilled and the kids don't have to be competent to graduate. If the Republicans want to lose, and they might, they might be good with that, or at least the donor class may be good with that, so long as they individually win. If the Republicans want to lose, they will neglect this and they'll just let the left do whatever the left wants to do. Or they'll dance to the tune of the left. The left says, jump, and the Republicans say, how high? Yeah, I want to be bipartisan. Yeah. With Bolsheviks? Really? No, thanks. How about try telling them no? How about saying, that's terrible. That's a terrible idea. That's so dangerous. How about calling them out when they are literally socialists, when they're out-and-out communists? No, you don't have the courage? Well, okay, I guess we're just going to be governed by the CCP because that's what they'll do. Once they have absolute lockdown on our system, then they're going to take all of these big tech metadata mechanisms and they're just going to hand the keys over to the CCP. A standing ovation at a dinner for Xi Jinping in San Francisco, that's not the limit. If that's what they'll let you see, just wait. You'll find out in due time what the conversation looked like when the cameras weren't rolling, when people weren't allowed to hold up their phones and take pictures and take video. For our last story, though, let's talk about Republican-controlled Texas House votes down school choice measure. Some reporting, again, by Leif Lemehu over at the Daily Wire from just yesterday. This is near and dear to my heart. I wrote a book, published it the very last day, New Year's Eve of 2020, titled, And This Is Why We Homeschool. Please, by all means, check it out. If you're close by, feel free to hit me up and I'll sign your copy. But for now, (laughs) let's talk about school choice in Texas, specifically, and this reporting by Leif Lemayhew. He writes, The Republican-controlled Texas House of Representatives voted to reject a school choice measure on Friday, drawing the ire of Republican Governor Greg Abbott. The measure to create a Texas education savings account was taken out of an omnibus education bill after Republican Representative John Rainey introduced an amendment to take it out, saying that it was an entitlement program. The amendment to remove school choice from the bill passed 84 to 63, with 21 Republicans voting for the amendment. Quote, I believe in my heart that using taxpayer dollars to fund an entitlement program is not conservatives and is bad public policy, period, Rainey said, according to the Center Square. KVUE reported that most of the Republicans who supported the amendment were from rural districts. More on that in a minute, by the way. I'll comment on that. I have some thoughts. I have some thoughts on that. Uh, For now, we'll move on. House Public Education Committee Chairman Brad Buckle, the author of the bill, said during debate on the bill that Texas lawmakers had the opportunity, quote, for the first time in Texas, give parents of the most vulnerable real options for a better future for the kids, end quote. Abbott has consistently called for school choice and said that he was disappointed with the House vote. Quote, I will continue advancing school choice in the Texas legislature and at the ballot box and will maintain the fight for parent empowerment until all parents can choose the best education path for their child. I'm in it to win it, Abbott told the Austin American statesman. Quote, the small minority of pro-union Republicans in the Texas House who voted with the Democrats will not derail the outcome that their voters demand. 
Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick also criticized the decision, referring to the fact that the Texas Senate had passed school choice several times over the few years, including during the special session. Last week, the Senate passed a bill that would have allotted $8,000 per student in private or public school for education-related costs. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, said that the Republicans who voted to take the school choice measure out of the education bill should be primaried. Quote, the group of anti-parent Republican Texas state reps who voted today with radical unions over parents and kids to kill school choice should be on notice. Their actions today were completely shameful. Parents in these districts will work vigorously in the primaries to defeat them. School choice advocates are coming for these state reps seats and they're coming hard, end quote. Now, let's go back, like I said we would, let's go back to the fact, as reported, that most of the Republicans who voted for this amendment come from rural districts. The Republicans coming from rural districts, I get it. I know why they were chosen, why they were voted in by their constituents in those rural districts. And it has everything to do with people in small town America thinking in too many cases that they're conservative because they're rural. No, you might just be a progressive who, because you're maintaining the tradition of progressivism in your city, in your town, you think you're a conservative. What are you conserving? You're conserving not the best educational outcome for these kids. You're conserving the progressive, brainwashing, compulsory government schooling option that unfortunately served you so poorly that you think you're conservative. If they told you in your local public school, in your little town, that you're a conservative and they're all conservatives because this is rural America, they lied to you. And the sad thing is you don't have the sense God gave a goose to know any better. And when somebody tries to tell you, hey, that's that, that guy, friend, buckaroo, that's not conservative, you won't listen because you're too proud to listen. Because you pride yourself first and foremost on being from that small town. And what are your fellow Republicans trying to tell you that you won't listen to? You would rather vote with the Democrats. And shouldn't that be a tell when the Democrats want this? Shouldn't that be a tell that maybe you're on the wrong side of this? That this actually accomplishes their purpose, which is to make your small town ever more progressive to where in 10 years, if that long, you won't be in your seat. Because your small town will have cranked out a whole bunch of activists who grow up and then they have the ability to vote or they have the gumption to riot in the streets and they demand Democrats. They flip your district Democrat. See, I know what this is like. I know from Eastern Montana, where I was born and raised for a good chunk of my formative years, I know because I took my family, I moved my family back in 2012 to Eastern Montana to work in the oil and gas industry in the Bakken, as it is known often, the Williston Basin, as it's also alternatively known. I know what flack we took for homeschooling our kids, even for me to be a deacon at our little church in eastern Montana. Was a bridge too far for the families that were so heavily involved in their small, savage public schools? It was too much. Why? Because, well, you're not participating. You're not participating in this part of our community, right? You're rejecting this part of who we are, that we're so involved in our local public school. Our local public school, no, 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 no. Don't be criticizing public schools anywhere in America because you might be implying that that's happening here 
And if you are, well, we take umbrage. It couldn't happen here. It wouldn't happen here. Yeah, it happens everywhere, though. You tell me that in one breath, and then in the next breath, you're telling me about how you went to the state track meet with the kids from this small public school, and, oh, look, there's open displays of homosexual affection between students. Oh, look, there's a transgendered student participating for another team. Oh, look, we're having the boys use the girls' bathrooms and locker rooms the next town over in that public school. Don't tell me your small town is an exception. It's not. But then even if you think it is, okay, even if you think it is, what a vote of no confidence in how obviously a better choice your public school is, even in your small town, if you think it's the exception rather than the rule. What a vote of no confidence. When you're so afraid of parents having the funds to homeschool their child instead of sending their kid to your public school, you're so afraid that you're going to vote down school choice. That doesn't sound like you're so confident it's the obvious best choice for these kids. Or how about if there's a private school in town? There's a little STEM academy or there's a Christian school. You think your public school is so much of a better choice that parents who would send their kids to that private school instead of your public school shouldn't have access to their tax dollars to make that choice if they think it's what's best because you're afraid that they will make that choice because you're afraid that more and more parents in your community will make that choice because they don't agree with you that your local public school is so much better than all the alternatives. And you're not a conservative if you think they should be forced to send their kids to your public school because your public school does it better. You're a progressive and you don't even know that you're a progressive. That's how bad your education was. And that's yet another reason why we homeschool. And this is why we homeschool. Because you run Republican, you get into office and you caucus with the Republicans. You put an R behind your name and you think you can call yourself a conservative and you're not. You're not a conservative. You're just for some conservative things and you're not in lockstep on everything with the Democrats. That doesn't mean... That doesn't make you a conservative. You know that being a Democrat out and out, you would have to be in lockstep with the Democrat Party platform on everything. And you're not for everything that they're for, but you're for too much of it. And you're for it eventually. You're just getting to that point slower and over time, but probably not as slow as you think. You think you'll come up with something between now and the terminus of this rail line. No, the train is coming into the station or the bridge is out ahead much sooner than you think, because you were counting on the Democrats to maintain a certain pace, a certain trajectory. They're not. They won't. But then what gives me some encouragement here in looking at this article is that there are quite a lot. There are more Republicans in Texas and even the governor of Texas saying school choice is imperative. You have Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, saying all of these House Republicans who voted against school choice will be primaried. They should be primaried and they will be primaried. And this, again, is a big reason I am very much a supporter of Ron DeSantis for president. I want to see him get in because he has been a big proponent of school choice in the state of Florida. And Florida students, Florida families are much the better for it. It's not a cure-all, it's not a panacea, but it is a big step in the right direction. There is no good argument against school choice. There are only bad arguments and dishonest arguments. But then think about this claim that 
It's an entitlement program. School choice is an entitlement program. And I'm a conservative. I'm not for entitlement programs. The whole public education system is an entitlement program. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? (laughs) That everybody is, whether they like it or not, taxed to sustain and fund the progressive model of public schooling based on, predicated on, patterned after the Prussian model, and you can't take your dollars somewhere else to school your kids at home, to send your kids to a private school, to a local Christian school, for instance. No, no, no. This would actually be working in the other direction from these funds being an entitlement program, a progressive entitlement program. You've got it exactly backwards. But then that is to say, too, if you're so against education being an entitlement program for the parents who want to homeschool or send their kids to a private school, go the whole way. Why don't you? Go the whole way and say you're going to just defund the public schools too. Independent, voluntary donations from the parents who send their kids to those schools will make up the funding difference, right? Independent donations from business owners and wealthy individuals in those communities will make up the difference. I mean, that's what it used to be. That's how it used to be. And our country was better for it. Just leave the tax dollars where they sit and let those people voluntarily fund at the level that they think best education. No, you don't want to do that? Well, then you actually are the one who won't touch the entitlement program. Because a one-size-fits-all, everybody should go to public school approach has brought us to this point where kids wait longer and longer to get married, if they get married at all. When they get married, if they get married at all, they have less than two children per marriage on average. Both parents work full-time, possibly plus overtime. The kids are babysat by the public schools. You just keep on doing that generation after generation. And yeah, over the next 70 to 80 years, we'll have half of this country made up of illegal immigrants if the progressive model of schooling gets its way. And you'll be long gone by then, right? You'll have been replaced with either a Democrat or whoever the Democrats say is a tolerable conservative next. It's a losing strategy. And it's not just a losing strategy moving forward like it's been working so well to this point. I know that it's a losing strategy moving forward because it's been losing consistently again and again on question after question, issue after issue for a long time now. You're making a conscious choice to help the Democrats to cement in their absolute control over this country. And you think because you know they greet you with a smile, they greet you with a smile, and they speak well of you relative your fellow Republicans who tell them no, and no means no, when you guys have a majority in the Texas House, for instance, you think that's some kind of a win. It's not, Benedict Arnold. It's not. So, In closing here, I actually want to draw you back to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I want to point out what is happening again. I'll remind you what is happening and what isn't happening in the case of David and Mephibosheth, grandson of Saul, son of Jonathan. The kindness that David shows to Mephibosheth is, first and foremost, to not do what a lot of godless kings and petty tyrants throughout history have done, to not kill him to make it known that this guy is under my protection. He's to be honored. Fear not, Mephibosheth. That's the first thing that he does. David does that, and it's to his credit. What David does not do, however, 
And this is as important as it is to note what he does do. What he doesn't do is he does not abdicate the throne and then put Mephibosheth on the throne. He doesn't do that. You have some Republicans, some so-called conservatives, they think they're conservatives in this country, far too many Christians who think that to prove our Christian charity, we should put people on the other side of the political spectrum, the ideological spectrum, the religious spectrum into positions of power as early and often as we possibly can, because that demonstrates how good we are, how godly we are. No, that's stupid. It's extraordinarily foolish and not necessary. Who told you? Where did you get that from? That that's the height of spirituality. That's the height of charity. To put the other guy on the throne, to put the other guy in the position of authority. There's none of that in this chapter. David's kindness to Mephibosheth is to protect him, to honor him, to make sure that he gets everything that belonged to his father and his grandfather before him, but not the kingship, not authority over Israel. And that's what differentiates David from far too many evangelicals today. Far too many evangelical Christians, even when they think they're very conservative, the first chance they get, they take the authority that has been entrusted to them and they just give it over to the opposition. And then they rationalize it, they spiritualize it, and they say, oh, well, but that, you know, we struggle not against flesh and blood. And so, you know, yeah, but that doesn't mean that you should be stupid and you're being stupid. You're being careless. You're being irresponsible. Oh, I've got to prove how much I trust God by giving the kingdom back to the descendant of Saul. He might be a really great guy, but God didn't tell you to do that. So it's not actually a spiritual thing. And it's not actually you being magnanimous, it's you being derelict. So David doesn't do that. We shouldn't do that. Now, if we don't have political power, if we don't have economic wherewithal to be able to do all that we would or we would like to see done, and if the people who do have those things, who do have political power and they do have economic wherewithal, if they won't listen, they won't do what we encourage them to do, okay, then that's what it is. But when you do have the ability to fund candidates and you do have the ability to cast votes in favor of what is good and what is true and what is beautiful according to God. And then you say, yeah, we're just going to let the other side have what they want. Shame on you. Ted Cruz is right. Every single one of these Republicans in Texas should be primaried. Ron DeSantis is right. The incentive structure has to change for selling out America. And then all the while telling us, this is for your good, right? This is for the greater good. That we're betraying you? What? No, no, it's not for the greater good. It's for your bottom line. You got very wealthy. To this point, by selling out America, you're going to keep on selling out America until we disincentivize it, until we remove or curb the incentives relative how dangerous this is for the rest of us. Will we be successful? Well, I, for one, think we will be more successful if we're actually playing to win, participating with a recognition that, just like in the case of David, it may be a long, hard road before God, if he does, put us in a position of authority, put us in a position to actually affect these things. But if and when he does, we need to be ready to be kind to the other side, be gracious, trusting God, not being vengeful, leave it to the wrath of God. If there's vengeance that needs to be exacted against enemies, overcome evil with good, absolutely. But don't get your signals crossed. Don't suppose that repaying evil for evil means you do what is right now, that you're in a position to do what is right. 
it would be unjust to take it out on Mephibosheth, plain and simple. It would be punishing him for the sins of his grandfather if David had neutralized what many would have considered a threat. But it is not necessary. It's not justice to say, because your grandfather was king and your uncle Ishbosheth was king, now I'm going to abdicate and I'm going to give you the throne. No, just like with the building of the temple. Okay, maybe if somebody got it in their heads that, uh, hey, wouldn't that be great, right? Wouldn't that be a great gesture? Wouldn't that be so healing? You know, just like when David's like, oh, you know, it's not right that I live in this house made of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent still. The response from Nathan, faithfully delivering the word of the Lord to David, is, when have I ever asked for a house to be built for me? I don't need you to build me a house. Your son, after you, he will. You can gather and collect the materials. No, I don't want you to build me a house. I'm building you a house. True humility, if we are really, truly humble, we're going to consider that that may be what God has in store. And if it is, we're not going to be apologetic and we're not going to just raise a white flag of surrender to our opponents when they've demonstrated to this point, if not always bad intentions per se, their definition of good intentions, when they think they have good intentions, it's predicated on lies and falsehoods and vice. So yes, again, parents should have every opportunity to see to the education of their own children, especially when you see whether or not teachers are skilled or students are competent being waved off because it's about control. Parents should have the driver's seat. Parents should have access to the funds. I think an educational savings account is a great idea. And whatever you don't spend, here's a great idea too. Whatever you don't spend on schooling, just like an HSA, whatever you don't spend on schooling K through 12 because you didn't need to, compared to what the public schools were spending on each student, it rolls over. And then at the end of their high school career, hey, look, here's all this money that can be spent on college if they want to go to college or trade school if they want to go to trade school, if they need to learn some valuable trades. Wouldn't that be a great idea? That's not an entitlement program. That actually would be the most conservative if we're talking about the founding ideals of this country, self-rule, self-government, you say that ship has sailed and now you're just going to conserve the progressive ideals, decades long, multi-generational, 100 years and, and going, yeah, not going strong, but 100 years and still kicking, then you're no conservative. But we should be. As a closing thought, as a final, final thought, bringing this all back to the state of Colorado, I'll give you a heads up and I hope to talk about this more on this podcast soon. I want to do some more research before I make this a main topic and talk out of turn or don't know what I'm talking about or I'm misinforming you. But here in the state of Colorado, the State Board of Education is considering rule changes that basically, if all of them passed in the wrong direction, would amount to defunding my tech high programs as pertain to kids who go to kids who go to private school, kids who are homeschooled, students who are homeschooled, like my students. I know a lot of families who are very much benefited by my tech high funds, and it's nowhere near the dollar figure in view in the state of Texas. Now, that would be great. That's really what it should be. It should be more like what was being proposed by school choice proponents in the state of Texas. $8,000 a student? That would still be a massive, a massive savings, a major savings for the taxpayers in the state of Colorado compared to what is spent on public schoolers. But even so, you know, as much less as it is per student in my household, it makes a big difference. And we make much, much better use of those funds than the public schools would. And yet 
if this passes all these rule changes that the Board of Education wants to make to cement in the monopoly of government schooling, compulsory government schooling in the state of Colorado, it will be very bad for my family and so many homeschooling families I know. It'll be very bad for our students, for our community, for our state. Maybe if we comment on this now, before it's too late in the next few weeks, because we only have a few weeks left, maybe we can talk them out of making these wrong choices, bad choices. I hope to talk about this more on this podcast very soon. So stay tuned. Hit subscribe if you haven't. Watch out for an upcoming episode in which I'll be talking about this more in depth. But for right now, let me just emphasize, regardless of whether the state of Colorado goes a certain direction, I mean, we can go and move to a different state, by the way, and I wouldn't rule that out. If the state of Colorado wants to make it impossible for homeschooling families, you will see a lot of homeschooling families just up and leave the state. And maybe those people who are so hostile to alternatives would welcome that. Maybe they think that would be great. Get these guys out of here. Well, we don't like them anyways. That would be a big loss to the state of Colorado too. But whatever the state of Colorado does, whatever our government in the U.S. more broadly does pertaining to education, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Don't lose sight of how impactful you pursuing faithfulness at your own level of jurisdiction is and will be. And don't think just short-term. Think medium and long-term. How is this going to affect your kids when your kids are your age? How is this going to affect the opportunities for your children's children when your children have children someday, Lord willing? Think of it in those terms, and that'll help a great deal to clarify what your priorities should be right now and today. But speaking of, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.